I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Lillian Garham, and I'm the advocate. Yes, you are. I can see it. It's you. It's you. It's me. It's really me. It's, it's you. Yeah, it's cool. And this is the Pushback Talk summer series. And not everybody has a summer series, but we have. I know this joke is now getting run down, but it's still a joke, so it can work. We go we are, we, we are proud. <laughs> We're really proud. Leilani, in the film, you have a quote. You say something that provokes a lot of people around the world. I don't have a problem with capitalism. <laughs> and then you say, but... Something like... Um capitalism run amok mm. i do have a problem with yeah is that so what i say you, kind of that and and uh, like that. yeah and today we're going to revisit a friend and a very interesting writer peter s goodman at the new york times he's their global economic correspondent he's also been working for a lot of other publications washington post he was china for many years he's been in london he's been around he has a very global perspective, but we met him to talk about capitalism, but also about his new book. And his new book is called Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Leilani, an what amazing is the book about? Book. An amazing book. It's about five guys. It's about Jeff and Larry and Stephen and Mark and Jamie, who are billionaires not just ordinary guys. Well, they might be quite ordinary, actually, except for the fact that they're billionaires. And uh, they run things like big tech and um, are involved in big pharma. They're involved in uh, real estate and assets. And uh, he really exposes the way in which they rule the world, actually, Mm. and are affecting the little people who are just trying to make a go of things. Um, it's a fantastic book. I can't say how many times I've recommended. I'm you know, being interviewed by some a journalist. I'm talking to a student. I'm talking to an academic, another advocate. And I'm like, you've got to read Davos, man. Mm. It's amazing. Expose. I'm actually just back from New York where I met with Peter S. Goodman. And right. I interviewed him for my new film. Mm. And because I think he has knowledge that could be could travel even more Uh, there's one story in the film about an employee of Jeff Bezos the Amazon guy Ah. in your new film you mean yeah the one I'm working on so I met on a film with Chris Smalls who is Mm. this guy in the book I I met him first in the book uh, where Peter tells the story about how Chris, during the pandemic, was trying to tell the superiors that, you know, we can't come to work, everybody, because the, this virus will, will kill us. We need protection. And the company said, no, no, we don't have protection. You all have to be here. And if you don't come, you lose your job. So people came sick. And then they were actually packing protection you know, sending yeah. out to people who could pay for it, but, but right. the workers didn't get. Crazy. And when he then started to organize more, he got, he got fired for this. But Chris Smalls is a very cool guy, so he's, he organized the first union in an Amazon warehouse that's in Staten Island in New York City. Very interesting guy, and, and it's really 
since then, I mean, he's been in the Congress speaking, he's been to in the Oval Room in the White House with Biden, and he's now touring the U.S. in something that he called Hot Labor Summer. So follow Chris Smalls on on uh, Twitter, Instagram. He's, it's very interesting to see how somebody who's coming from totally below, you know, working in this really hard, and he's now getting a big following in the US. And mm. it's not only the, the Amazon workers who are now organizing unions, also the, the Starbucks workers are organizing unions. So there is there is a pushback, yes. you know, there is a, and, and this is like, it fits what we talk about very much. But we should maybe listen to Peter from, <laughs> because it's, we talked about a lot of things and it's really interesting. And if we started to talk about capitalism and the complications. So the billionaires are doing something to the world, Peter. They certainly are. Uh, they are uh, dominating our global economy, uh, taking a system that, you know, was never perfect. Uh, we could always find things to complain about uh, in terms of the equity. Uh, but from 1945 till about the mid-70s was actually doing a fairly good job in most major economies of creating new opportunities for uh, huge numbers of people. Now, you know, I don't want a time machine back to 1975. We've made a lot of progress in all sorts of areas that we want to hang on to. Uh, but in one key regard, that period is special in that uh, the gains of capitalism, the gains of economic growth were by and large transferred to working people uh, commensurate with productivity. People, everybody got a piece of the action. Wasn't perfectly fair, it wasn't ideal. But in that key regard, there's something that we need to get back to. Because in the years since, the world's most powerful people, the people I call Davos man, this billionaire set that operates across jurisdictions, uh, challenging their uh, allegiance to any particular country, people who can literally hire lobbyists, lawyers, uh, tax accountants, you know, by the dozen in multiple jurisdictions at once, have rigged the system so that the money now flows overwhelmingly into their own coffers. Hmm. Interesting, Peter, because I mean, I did this film Push, where Leilani is the, the superhero, hmm. and and um, for us, that making that film was also journeying into you know understanding. The setup and understanding that uh, the, the financial crisis 2008 kind of created this super landlord Blackstone, uh, they really did things. And I remember we had a screening at the Castro in San Francisco, that amazing theater, yeah. uh, sold out a lot of people. And uh, a young lady came up to me after the film and said, Frederick, I feel less lonely now because now mm. I know it's not my fault. That, that it's so hard to live in this city. And actually, when I talked to Leilani now, after reading your book, she said the same. I feel less lonely now because now I have Peter S. Goodman at New York Times telling the same story. Isn't it like that, Leilani? That's a wonderful story. I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, that's, um, that is absolutely my experience of reading your book, Peter. Um, I have to say, I, in a, if I had to give a little you know, one-liner about your book, compulsive and compulsory reading. Mm. Um, and for me, I mean, 
I'm Leilani Farha. I'm an advocate. I'm working here from my basement. I was the UN rapporteur on the right to housing, but that even that position itself, people look at a little bit strangely. So when I would talk about this stuff, especially as a, I think actually there's a, a gender dimension here. Sure. As a youngish seeming woman weighing <laughs> in on big finance and saying these guys are owning the world, they are running the world. People look at me like I'm crazy often. And your book is like all the details all the proof, all the evidence of what's actually happening around the globe. So I, I can, I, I have to say, I, it was an amazing read. It was a total page oh, turner. So I was like, every page, I'm like, what's next? What's happening next? And and a huge contribution, in my opinion, a huge contribution. So thank oh well, you. thank you so much. You know, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, that you say, not to put words in your mouth, but it's like it reveals this thing that's been going on that we've all sensed. You know, I think, you know, it's important to note, I'm not laying out a kind of puppeteer conspiracy. Um, it's not as if, you know, there's some dark room. I mean, there is the World Economic Forum at Davos, which plays an important <laughs> role. But, you know, even there, it's not like there's some master detailed plan. All this stuff has actually happened in plain view, but it's happened so steadily and gradually. I mean, it's a little bit like climate change, right? Like, like we, we can, if we're scientists and we're actually measuring water levels by the millimeter, then we're paying attention. If we're looking at thousandth of degrees of temperature change over time, fine. But it's not until there's a big storm where suddenly everybody's basement's flooded, where people are having to go to high ground, where people are hungry in places where there used to be plenty of food, where we say, well, hold on, you know, what's happened here? And we've had a series of crises in recent years between the global financial crisis, uh, the, the austerity that's been imposed uh, in, in much of the globe to ensure that, you know, the richest people don't have to pay, but ordinary people who actually depend upon government services do. And now, of course, the pandemic. And so, you know, all of this stuff that I'm tracing in this book has happened in plain view. You just have to put it together to, to get the picture. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it's resonated in that way. A lot of these, I mean, you are pointing out you're focusing on five big billionaires. Uh, it could have, I guess it could have been five different ones also. Definitely. But I mean, these are really interesting. But uh for us, you you focus a lot about Blackstone and, and their CEO and founder, Steve Schwartzman. Uh, when we started to do push, Leilani and I started to talk to each other. We, we didn't know anything about Blackstone. They were totally flying under the radar for, for a very long time. And now you put a lot of focus on them. So... Are they, have they changed now or is this, uh, do they like this attention? Uh, I don't think they like <laughs> this attention. I mean, I think Leilani can tell you about her own experiences uh, in terms of, you know, their attempts to silence her and in my own dealings uh, with uh, Blackstone's communications people. You know, I should say Schwartzman never talked to me. Uh, I spent three days a few years ago in Beijing at this very high level conference where uh, Schwartzman and I both went off with uh, actually something like five heads of state, uh, other billionaires, including Pierre Omidyar, uh, the eBay founder, 
Uh, we all went off to the Great Hall of the People for an hour with Xi Jinping. I mean, this was really quite quite an experience. And I was able to see Schwartzman up close. He doesn't like to talk to the press. He wasn't particularly interested in talking to me. Uh, he did bring me along with a contingent of people to go visit his uh, Schwartzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University, which is you know, the, one of the most prestigious campuses in Beijing, in a place that he's used to you know, highlight his cooperation between the U.S. and China while he's vacuuming up investment from Chinese sovereign wealth funds, uh, while he's uh, pushing out uh, his own investments in, in China. So, you know, this is not somebody who likes to engage uh, with the world other than uh, on his own terms. And he likes to project this sense, and this, this I argue in the book is, is, you know, quintessential Davos man behavior. He likes to project his own undertakings as like a gift to the world. Like it's not enough that he's making huge amounts of money. And, you know, sorry, we should back up for a second. Steve Schwartzman is the world's largest private equity magnate. He's a huge uh, real estate investor. He's worth roughly uh, $30 billion. Uh, and, you know, you guys ran into him, I gather, in terms of his investments in Europe and especially in, in Sweden, where he uh, opportunistically uh, entered the market after what we now call the sovereign debt crisis and uh, picked up huge uh, swaths of affordable housing, jacked up the rents, uh, evicted people, cut maintenance. And what I discovered in, in, in doing the book was, you know, this is his template, right? I mean, oh, I didn't discover this. I mean, other people have written about this as well. But the foreclosure crisis in the States, you know, he goes in uh, and spends hundreds of millions of dollars buying up uh, distressed uh, real estate in the U.S., and then, you know, flips all this real estate for a tremendous profit, which, you know, I think for those of us who are accustomed to capitalism would say, well, you know, that's how it works. People with money go find stuff to buy, then they sell it to somebody else for more money. But in his memoir and in his public speeches, he goes on about how, you know, this wasn't about the money. This was this act of civic virtue. We went into places where houses had been left to the elements with, you know, weeds overgrowing the lawns and rodents running around and we fixed them up and re, you know, fresh coats of paint. And as I say in the book, like, you know, you can almost hear the soundtrack for this pleasing, you know, life insurance commercial with some adorable golden retriever puppy romping around on a freshly cut lawn with a toddler. Uh, you know, the reality is he starts this thing called Invitation Homes, which is an invitation for people to pay uh, exorbitant rent, people who don't have the money to just easily pick up and move somewhere else, uh, also not by accident. I mean, he's very savvy at finding people where there's engaging in transactions where essentially there's a, a clear power imbalance. You know, he's got the money, he's dealing with people who are just kind of making it paycheck to paycheck. They can't just go out and go rent some other apartment and come up with a security deposit. So he jacks up their rent uh, to levels at which they can just manage, but he's getting the maximum. He, he cuts maintenance. Uh, it suddenly becomes impossible to get hold of anybody if you have a plumbing problem and an electrical problem. And this is the template that we've seen around the world, which is how you guys got on the trail, as I understand the story. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we actually, I mean, we started off with Blackstone buying a lot of foreclosed housing in the U.S. and in Spain and in on Ireland. The Sweden story, we didn't even know about, but we just... Lilani was invited to Sweden and we did like, oh, so are they, maybe we should have a check. <laughs> and then we found this story. So they've been totally flying under the radar. 
And since then, we've been, we've been going to country to country to show the film. And we always ask people, do you know if Blackstone is in your country? And people most of the time say, no, no, they are not here. And they are always there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely true. Um, they're everywhere. And th this whole uh, model that they use and that the other billionaires use, um, the extractive industry model, using finance as a, um, to extract more wealth, um, is ubiquitous. It's just, it is the way it is. And in the housing world, it is the model now. So the damage that Blackstone has done isn't just within their own holdings. It's that they've created, established a model that is accepted. And all these other asset management firms and private equity and hedge funds and et cetera are using the same model. And so the, the damage is so huge. It's, it's, Blackstone is everywhere, but the model is everywhere. And this idea that they are saving the world. I mean, that's how they responded to me when I wrote right. what are called the Blackstone letters. Um, when I wrote to Blackstone to say, hey, I think you're violating human rights here and um, uh, you, you can't keep doing this. They replied and just said, and, and you put that in your book, what are you talking about? We are providing housing for needy families and we have saved the world. We're the solution. We're the good exactly. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that is something that they say again and again. And, you know, I'm not even attempting to demonize Blackstone or any other uh, company controlled by some billionaire. I mean, it seems safe to say that if we live in the market system and the market system has, you know, all sorts of benefits, right? It's a very good way to find out what a fair price is if it's a real market with the regulator ensuring that there's transparency uh, and everybody gets a shot, then the market system is, is, is really quite, quite vibrant. Uh, and it's a tremendous source of innovation. And we should be grateful that the market system has provided all sorts of you know, modern innovation. But we've got to have democracy. I mean, we can't be in a situation where the Blackstones of the world, you know, the Steve Schwartzman of the world can take the winnings from their business ventures and then use them to warp the rules of our democracies and essentially undermine uh, processes that have put in place. I mean, Sweden, you know, it, it's, I think it's shocking for a North American audience to, you know, confront the reality that this bastion of social democracy, you know, everybody knows, like, oh, 500 days of paid family leave when you have a child and, you know, the hospitals are open to everyone and education's free. And I mean, I, I've had serious economists say to me, boy, if you're born in Sweden, you have won at life. Uh, and that's that's our image. And, and let, let me let me be careful. Like, in a lot of ways, that's actually true. And there there's a lot to the Swedish model that is quite vibrant. But, you know, Blackstone goes in and they clearly undermine uh, the notion of affordable housing. Uh, and in so doing, they contribute to the same sort of breakdown in faith, in leadership, in authorities, in the whole notion of collectivism that's at the center of, of, of the Nordic model. You know, the understanding that we all get something out of society. Uh, and they, they it, it's a violation of the concept of society. I mean, I, I was really struck as I spoke to uh, people who'd been living in 
uh, these Blackstone-owned uh, housing projects on the outskirts of Stockholm, you know, which has seen, yeah. I think, also shocking to people who don't know Sweden, has seen, you know, a housing bubble, the likes of which, I mean, we're talking San Francisco levels, you know, beyond London, New York. I mean, there's less affordable housing in Stockholm than there is, you know, in that bastion of, of easy rent uh, apartments, New York City. I mean, that that's a stunning thing, you know, and that, that did not happen by accident. So... You know, these people who've been living in what were once, you know, modest middle class homes who suddenly, you know, discover that, no, they're actually living in financial assets that are being traded by these entities. They're not called Blackstone, by the way. They always have some, you know, local name uh, to kind of shield scrutiny. Uh, And suddenly their home where they've raised children, where they've lived their lives is is revealed to be this kind of security, a chip by by which, you know, people like Steve Schwartzman are making the next, you know, billion dollars. And that that has a just a kind of debilitating, it, it's like an existential crisis for people to learn that the system that they've had faith in is really not built for their interests. It's built for interests who are far away and much more powerful. Hmm. Well, Lani, uh, democracy, is that the answer? <laughs> well, um I'm I I'm interested uh, to explore what it means to say that democracy or a return to a kind of democracy might be the answer. What are the elements in that? Of course, I'm a human rights lawyer, and so what I um, am wondering always, my pursuit is how do we or shouldn't we use human rights? and the legal obligations states have committed to and made as a way to ensure capitalism doesn't run amok, to ensure a more tame capitalism that, that includes social well-being and economic well-being as part of its, uh, the way it runs, the way it goes. Um, so I was wondering, Peter, if you had ever turned your mind to that because you do say in the book at the end in the sort of solutions part um that um part of the problem with capitalism right now is it's not i mean you don't use these words and my apologies it's you're far more eloquent but you know part of the problem with capitalism right now is that it's not being regulated it's not being tamed or or um sufficiently um yeah i don't know regulated to ensure good uh, outcomes sorry frederick Capitalism speed, we call them, or, st- or steroids. On steroids, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, and so I wonder about the, the power of human rights um, to do what you think needs to be done. Well, first of all, I think we need to actually take back this idea of capitalism because I think we've absorbed in most major economies this idea that what we've got, that's capitalism. And if you're against it, you know, then you're a Bolshevik. Uh What we have is not capitalism. What we have in most major economies, certainly in in my own, in in the U.S., is a kind of uh, welfare for billionaires, you know, a a, a kind of, you know, bailout mentality 
where, you know, therefore, whatever ideology works to get the next rescue crafted their way, they want free markets when they're in a position to dominate those markets. Free market is usually like a term they throw around to defend themselves against a regulator who might look askance at their monopoly power, uh, at their, you know, tax avoidance strategies. And then the rest of us get rugged individualism. That's not capitalism. You know, capitalism requires a, a market participant who is governed by a regulator who's making sure that there's fairness and, and transparency. So I, I do think we need to reclaim that idea along. You know, I've spent a lot of my career uh, going back to the dot-com bubble, where I remember, you know, I would write about the telecom deregulation in the States, and suddenly cable companies were rebuilding the old Ma Bell monopoly uh, in the States. And if you questioned that, if you asked, well, you know, how does the consumer benefit from, you know, now once again, having to deal with one company, I'd be told by lobbyists, you know, oh, you're anti-business. Really? So being pro-business is accepting that whatever the monopolists want to do is great. And anybody who asks a critical question is anti. I mean, I'm pro-business. I'm for small businesses. I'm for, you know, multiple participants. And I'm for people who are at the center of our democracies applying their power to influence the nature of our markets so that more people actually benefit. That's not, you know, that doesn't turn us into Venezuela. I mean, Davos man would have us believe that we either accept the status quo where there's tremendous inequality, huge numbers of people left out, can't afford drugs, can't afford to send their kids to school. Uh, they're one in the States, you know, you're one emergency away from turning the lights off in your house and sleeping under a highway overpass, uh, you know, and either we accept that, Davos man tells us, or, well, we might as well be Venezuela. And, you know, we got to give up Uber and Google and central air conditioning. We can go dumpster diving for our dinner. You know, that's not how life works. Uh, Oxfam the other week published a report uh, saying that the world's billionaires, your friends, the friends in your book, they have doubled their their wealth during the pandemic. So the the richest people on the planet right. has doubled their wealth. Have they? Have they? I mean, normally we say we should reward people who do good stuff, who who invent new things, or so. Have they? brought something new to the table for the world to to make that all that money? I mean, they're the beneficiaries of the rescues launched by just about every major economy during the first wave of the pandemic when the markets were recoiling in horror. Uh, and central bankers and treasuries uh, put a lot of money on the line to boost asset prices and billionaires own assets. So, you know, not to denigrate. Look, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion. We can argue about whether anybody should be worth $200 billion. Clearly, Jeff Bezos is a very bright guy, really hard worker, uh, recognized a tremendous uh, opportunity to alter our shopping experience in a way in which consumers really appreciate, right? Like we all enjoy the convenience of click here and something shows up at our door. And during the pandemic, that probably saved a lot of people's lives and allowed those of us lucky enough to work, you know, via Zoom, who don't have to go work in a slaughterhouse or empty a bedpan in a in a senior home, you know, that allowed us a, a, a certain uh, degree of, of normalcy. Thanks for that. You should be rewarded for that. But not to the extent at which the people working in your warehouses 
are, are actually uh, having to choose between their paychecks and their health. You know, it's not that Bezos is prospering while his warehouse workers are prospering not so much that's the problem. It's that he's prospering because the people who work in his warehouses are prospering. And it's the same, you know, Schwartzman's billions. Uh, I mean, he's, he's actually said publicly, the pandemic has been this wonderful opportunity to jack up people's rents. Uh, people are helpless. Uh, we know that Schwartzman's made a huge amount of money on investments in healthcare in the US and especially in emergency rooms. Hey, that's a good place to be. A casino operator will tell you that you make money in a darkened room where people don't know what time it is and they're drinking a lot. Uh, well, in an emergency room, people are not always, you know, in the best position to ask, you know, what's going to happen uh, in terms of my health insurance policy and who exactly is treating me? They, they're going to sign the paperwork that's given to them so they can go get get uh, assistance. And people like Schwartzman have uh, exploited that fact uh, to jack up profits at the direct expense of the resiliency of the healthcare system. Uh, for for everyone else. So, you know, you look at something like the 10 richest people in the world have doubled uh, their their wealth in the course of the pandemic. And it's clear that that is not an accident. That has happened because they had already put in place a system uh, that ensured that every time something bad happened, someone would proffer a huge rescue, and they could use their lobbyists to influence those rescues to ensure that the asset holders, you know, got the lion's share. And that's exactly what's happened during the course of the pandemic. You you said something good here. I mean, you said, you mentioned the, the lobbyists and, and the image they are fighting for. I mean, Davos is a, is a place where also gives these people uh, uh, the, the light they want to have. Uh, Leilani, you you were in love with this line, the cosmic lie. Cosmic lie. Yeah. <laughs> Used what? throughout, yes. Um, maybe Peter can explain to our listeners what the cosmic lie is. I think this is a huge contribution that this book makes uh, to this world, because if you don't understand the cosmic lie, then you can't address what's going on. So please explain oh, the bet. cosmic lie. So the cosmic lie is this idea that Davos man has insinuated into our political discourse and our reality that when we organize our economies around uh, making it easier for the people who already have all the wealth to get more of it, when we cut their taxes, when we deregulate, that this will spur you know, innovation and growth and that will trickle down in the form of higher wages and better opportunities for everyone else, something that in reality has happened zero times. And, you know, we try it again and again. And part of the problem is that in our in our uh, media discourse, we're, you know, tempted to ask, well, you know, well, why do people still believe in this lie, you know, if it's clearly a lie? Well, you know, no one actually believes in this. Or, I mean, I think Davos Mann's skill, uh, one of Davos Mann's great attributes is the ability to kind of make the narrative true in his own mind. Uh, and we see this again and again in places like the World Economic Forum. We see this in the halls of Congress in, in, in Washington and in uh, legislatures uh, around the world, including in the UK, where I was living when I wrote this book. But, you know, Macron uh, comes in uh, as the president of France 
And the first thing he does, not by accident, because his campaign was underwritten by people like Bernard Arnault, who you know is sometimes the world's wealthiest person, depending on depending on fluctuations in stock prices. This is the guy behind you know Louis Vuitton, Dom Perignon. Uh, he owns uh, Chateau Yquem, the famous uh, uh, Sauternes. Uh, winery, and he, you know, he loves to wander around, waxing poetically about wine and playing the piano and finding, you know, new ways to not pay his taxes. And he underwrote Macron along with a bunch of other billionaires in France, uh, understanding that Macron, who's a consummate Davos man, I, I call him a Davos man collaborator. Uh, he's a guy who you know worked at Rothschild, the giant investment bank. He's very comfortable in Davos. He speaks perfect English. He projects this sense that France is over its days of being anti-business. Has and you know to his credit has talked about how we're going to deal with long-term unemployment, which is a serious problem in France, and has grounded the idea that a strong France, an economically strong France, will strengthen the European Union at a time when you know Brexit has hurt European unity. But the first thing he does is he cuts taxes on the richest people in France. And then he follows that up uh, by uh, increasing gas taxes uh, and probably not really understanding, I, I, I'm willing to believe, you know, his own country. Because if you live in Paris, you know, which is a city with fantastic public transportation, you can get around quite easily on a bicycle, on the metro, on the bus. The rest of the country actually looks a lot more like the United States than people might think. You know, people have to drive to get to work. There are a lot of people working these, you know, crappy temporary contract jobs. Full-time work has been downgraded to temporary jobs. And as one person put it to me, you know, we're just essentially going to work to buy gas so we can put it in the car and burn it to get to work. I mean, that's that's our life. And Macron comes in and he he cuts the wealth taxes, he increases the gas taxes, and the result is the conflagration that we now know as, you know, the gilets jaunes, the yellow vest movement, where the pretty much every working person in France puts on a yellow construction vest and goes out and says, hey, this is going to play really well with your friends at Davos at the World Economic Forum. Oh, you're saving the world through, you know, addressing climate change. We're dealing with, we're not dealing with the end of the world, we're dealing with the end of the month. And Macron, of course, has to walk this back. But, you know, this is just another example among many of the cosmic lie. And the cosmic lie is alluring because it's great for the donor class. It's a fairy tale that politicians can trot out as justification for rewarding the people who actually underwrite the camp their campaigns. And, you know, what they want, and we saw this, you know, with Trump in, in particular, who, you know, was fulminating against, you know, monkey wrenching, globalization, attacking the liberal world order, pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, saying all of these incredibly offensive, racist, misogynistic things. And yet Davos man focused like a laser on the thing that Trump could actually deliver, and that was this enormous package of tax cuts. And so people like Steve Schwartzman continued to support him, uh, would actually apologize for him, would wander around telling people, you know, there's not a racist bone in his body, despite all the evidence to the country. <laughs> the cosmic lie is the central organizing principle by which Davos man convinces us the government is not necessary. Government is full of bureaucrats. We're wasting our hard-earned dollars. And if you let Davos man have more of it, we'll all benefit. Yeah. 
just a detail, I, you know, Steve Schwartzman actually got one of the finest medals in France of another president, Sarkozy. So he's like the knight of something in France. So he's, he's, a, he's a big f- friend of France. Yeah. I, uh, just on the cosmic lie, it's so in the housing world in which I operate, unfortunately, this idea is so entrenched. It's lower property taxes, make money super cheap so that these guys can come in and either purchase or build and solve the housing crisis. And we know that what they actually do is they take the money and they run. They build, they may build, but what they're building is not affordable social housing, housing for those who are most in need. But they they use, that cosmic lie is so entrenched in how housing is dealt with. It's it, that's one for me. One of the strengths of this book that I, I, I now am literally, Peter. I'm going to be bringing your book to all of these meetings I go oh, to I'm and so say, to "Excuse me, like here is the cosmic lie, and you're you're um, proliferating this lie." Sorry, Frederick. Go, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I like where you're going. So, but I just want to bring in another cosmic liar <laughs> into <laughs> to the game uh, because there we have Blackstone. But then there's BlackRock, mm. and BlackRock has been kind of been portrayed as the, a friendlier version of Blackstone, a more environmental, responsible, and blah blah. You know, and and I hear a lot of people talking about that. And, and then Blackstone, BlackRock, <laughs> has been giving a lot of responsibilities here in Europe for uh, Leilani. You know a lot about this. Well, um, and the book the book details a lot of this. I have to say, when when the pandemic struck, and I noticed, of course, all the central banks, regional banks, lining up monetary policy and basically quantitative easing, or you know, pu- putting money back into the economy. I was trying to track it and follow it, and I noticed with I live in Canada. I noticed that BlackRock was being hired by all of these governments and banks to help set monetary policy. And I'm thinking, excuse me, BlackRock that has an interest in like every publicly listed, every listed company, BlackRock with tentacles everywhere that is really working for the shareholder. We're allowing BlackRock to be the consultant to all these governments. So I say these things and people think I'm crazy and who, what does she know from her bunker? But maybe you can talk a little bit about the role of BlackRock with governments and and what what they what they've been up to. Yeah, um, I mean, I think BlackRock is an institution that we all need to understand a lot better than we do. I mean, Bill Cohen is a former investment banker turned journalist. Once referred to Larry Fink as he's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, he's the guy behind the curtain. He's someone who has been under the radar for many years. He's the world's largest asset manager. So he manages $10 trillion in investments. A lot of this is passively invested in index funds. He's very effectively uh, vacuumed up pension funds from around the world, university endowments, and he runs a whole series of of investments. He's got exchange-traded funds, these sort of mutual fund-like instruments made up of baskets of stocks. And because he controls so much money, 
He's been able to track the flows of money, and he's a real kind of tech nerd. Uh, he lost a job early in his career at First Boston, where he actually uh, helped pioneer the mortgage-backed security because of a, uh, a, a data entry error, a, a, a kind of problem in his model, and there was a big jump in interest rates that he wasn't expecting, cost the company like $100 million. He was disgraced. So since then, he spent a lot of time on modeling and technology, and he's built up this product that's now uh, purchased by funds that collectively control $20 trillion, $20 trillion worth of assets. It's called Aladdin. Uh, I mean, what an ironic name. It's supposed to give these guys, I mean, it, it didn't predict the global financial crisis, but it's supposed to give everybody a, a view in real time, an alert system of you know changes that should concern us in the movements of money, uh, interest rate increases, you know geopolitical problems, w- whatever. And so people pay good money, trusting that Larry Fink supposedly knows more about flows of capital th- than anybody else. So not by accident, after the 2008 financial crisis, he's hired on to essentially be Uncle Sam's chief financial advisor, and then he repeats the trick in the bailouts of uh, the first part of the pandemic, where he's his company, BlackRock, is hired to determine which securities the Federal Reserve will buy to bolster the market. Now, I think, Leilani, you are not alone in decrying a, a enormous potential conflict of interest, because, you know, first of all, BlackRock controls 5% of something like 95% of all the stocks that make up the S&P 500. I mean, this is, as I say in the book, like the whole notion that we're supposed to look to Davos man to save us is kind of tragically hilarious because, you know, the World Economic Forum operates under the mantra committed to improving the state of the world. And members of the forum, like Larry Fink, are, of course, the greatest beneficiaries of the status quo. They have every incentive to perpetuate the status quo. And they use this idea of stakeholder capitalism, this idea that, you know, Milton Friedmanism, where companies are just supposed to maximize uh, shareholder returns, and through that, you know, the markets will will, will do their magic. Uh, no, that's over. Now they're catering to stakeholders, labor, the environment, society in general, local communities. Fink has been front and center pushing this idea. And, and I, I argue in the book that that's, that's really a kind of prophylactic against uh, people wielding democracy to impose rules that would alter the status quo, redistribution of, of capital. So Fink comes in in March of 2020, he once again gets the gig to determine what the Treasury is, I'm sorry, what the Fed is going to buy. Investors understand that a lot of that money is going to end up in BlackRock's own exchange-traded funds. So they start putting their money in ahead, realizing that those funds are going to go up. They do. Think gets more. Now, that itself is not such a big deal for a company that controls $10 trillion in assets. But the value of seeing behind the curtain at the Fed That, you know, it's hard to put a price tag on. And we've subsequently learned from the contracts released by the Fed that while BlackRock makes this big deal of fending off accusations of conflict of interest by saying, no, there's a clear barrier, there's clear separation, our people who are working for clients, they're in a whole separate part of the operation. turns out... They can send people over to the Fed side of the curtain. Then they can bring them back to BlackRock's normal profit-making channels after a two-week cooling-off period. I mean, that's just laughable.
In this podcast, uh, we earlier had a guest called Sarah Chase, who was a um, correspondent in Afghanistan. She wrote a book called Thieves of State uh, about corruption in, in several countries around the world. But her latest book is on corruption in America. And she talks a lot about the kleptocratic networks. And it seems like what you're describing now with BlackRock and Blackstone and and all these these very close relations with the politics and and this and, and institutions are it seems very corrupt. <laughs> I mean, most of what I write about in my book is flatly legal. I mean, these guys are geniuses at manipulating the democratic system so that they can do what they want. I mean, everything that I've just told you about Larry Fink, you know, that happened straight up in public view through the processes of of, of uh, uh, review. Uh, the contracts were publicized. I mean, one of the things that's kind of amazed me uh, last year at Davos, uh, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of a big Silicon Valley software company called Salesforce, actually said CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic. And he said, you know, the government <laughs> didn't save you. We saved you. We gave, we gave you vaccines and credit to stave off bankruptcy. And we did it not for profit, he said, but to save the world. And the astonishing thing about this, um, and Benioff is a, excuse me, Benioff is a complex character who actually does run a lot of uh, philanthropic enterprises. Uh, he did put his own money into uh, a San Francisco ballot initiative that jacked up taxes for companies like his own to fund uh, services for homeless people. He took a stand against the state of Indiana when they passed a law that would have discriminated against LGBTQ people, uh, threatened to pull uh, investment out of the state. I mean, he's a guy who does walk the walk uh, more than most. But, you know, a in a couple of years where his company has made billions of dollars uh, in profits, he has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes, flatly legal. You know, he's exploited these loopholes that were put in place by the Clinton Treasury that allows uh, American companies to transfer their intellectual property somewhere else. You know, Ireland is a popular place and then lease the use of that intellectual property back to their main business in the States and set those terms so high that on paper they're not making any money at all and paying profits accordingly. I mean, you could say, you know, Benioff would be a fool to not avail himself of, of that loophole. But, you know, it's worse than that. You know, he he's a member of the Business Roundtable, which is this uh, lobbying organization in Washington, uh, once headed by Jamie Dimon, who's another character in my book, the, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, he's part of uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I mean, these are entities that have lobbied aggressively for things like the Trump tax cuts. So, you know, this culture of corruption, it's happening in, in this is not like, Greedy CEOs with suitcases full of cash, you know, buying off corrupt leaders. Somewhere. This is greedy CEOs, you know, holding fundraisers that we can all see with our own eyes. This is greedy CEOs going to Davos and pontificating about how they're our saviors and we can count on the billionaires to solve all of our problems, which is, you know, just another way of... Um, of selling us the cosmic lie and telling us that we don't need to regulate and we don't need to collect taxes, we can see it all. Leilani, it seems like, it, I mean, when you read Peter's book, it's like this feeling of there is a little group of guys who kind of 
run the world, control the world and extract values from everywhere. How do you see mm-hmm. this, Leilani? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and the book is really good at, at um, giving you a sense of the world in which they operate. And they all know each other and they're all trading assets back and forth. And, you know, this company was once owned by uh, BlackRock and then it's going to be um, invested in by Blackstone later. And, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling and they all live. I mean, we had on an, on another podcast, um, Aaron Glantz sure. who wrote the book home records. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he talks about how they all, half of these guys live in the same building on park Avenue referenced in your book as well. And park, it's, yeah. No, Aaron's that's book right. was very useful to me. That, that's a great book and people should read it. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, so I mean, that that club is that it's part of what makes all of what you've just said, actually, around how legal everything is, how they're just availing themselves of the laws, actually. It's part of what makes it so difficult to bring this down because they 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 always have that response. Sorry, folks, but I'm I'm well within legislation here. And um, I mean, there's a number of things that make it so hard to bring this down. You had mentioned, I want to go back a little bit, if you don't mind, Frederick and, and Peter, but you had mentioned um, um, uh, stakeholder capitalism. And um, it for me, it's so troubling, because one of the real central things about human rights is that it's about human beings. And in order for governments to do human rights properly, uh, whether it's local government or national level government, they have to be um, meeting with everyday people and ensuring that the decisions they're making, um, that they have a say in the decisions that are being made about their lives. And stakeholder capitalism is a way for these guys to say that they're kind of doing what human rights says that you should do, right? right? They're saying, oh, yeah, we're talking to unions, we're talking to tenants and tenants associations and et cetera. And um, it's, of course, that's all window dressing. It's and it's not done properly. It's not done. It's actually not done. Um, and so anyway, only to say there's all these threads that make it so difficult to bring this stuff down. Frederick. No, I just wanted to add, uh, I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, Blackstone buying into an oat milk company here in my town, right. Oatly. Right. And it's, I mean, and that's a company that sells themselves as being extremely planet friendly. And they, and they claim that they kind of, by letting Blackstone in, they actually change Blackstone, which I don't really believe. But what I'm thinking of both BlackRock and Blackstone is that they're so big, so they're actually sitting in boards of thousands of companies. So actually, if they would like to save the planet, or if they would push for, for worker safety, they could do it because they're actually sitting on a lot of power in, in a lot of companies. But they don't do that. That's kind of... Well, Fink certainly claims to have that power. Fink sort of talks both ways, right? If you, if you pin him down, he'll say, well, actually, you know, 75% of my funds are passive, meaning they're just in giant index funds where, oh, you want to buy the S&P 500? Then you have to buy shares of 500 different companies, whoever they are and whatever they're doing. Though at the same time, every year, and he recently uh, put out you know his most recent version of the shareholder, le- this letter to CEOs, where he has said, you know, if you don't get right with climate change, the market will punish you and withhold capital. He has threatened to use uh, votes 
to uh, ensure that management's put in place that's friendly to his ideas about climate change. He gets a lot of ink, and now he's actually getting a lot of pushback from the right. So people are throwing around this term woke capitalism uh, to accuse people like Larry Fink of, you know, taking his eye off the ball of shareholder maximization, and, which I, I'm convinced is totally validating to Larry Fink. Like Larry Fink and the other proponents of stakeholder capitalism love that they're being attacked by the right for being woke capitalists because it validates that they're actually doing the things that they're not actually doing. Because in fact, Larry Fink has funneled $15 billion in capital to Saudi Aramco to help them build a natural gas pipeline. He's one of the largest, his company, BlackRock, controls huge shares in JBS, this Brazilian meat packer that's clear-cutting the Amazon. Um, I have this whole story in, in my book about how you know Larry Fink, in the midst of the pandemic, is squeezing Argentina in the midst of crisis, where poverty's on the rise, the government doesn't have money for basic services, and Larry Fink is heading the largest, most powerful group of bondholders demanding an extra, you know, several pennies on a dollar in debt repayment on the bonds, knowing that they're going to be debt workouts with developing countries around the globe. I mean, in places like Zambia, Ghana, Pakistan, they're actually cutting healthcare services in the middle of the pandemic because they have to prioritize paying back the bonds to Davos man. And at the head of that movement is Larry Fink. So what is happening now? Are the governments doing it better now? Not letting even more power over to the already richest people on the planet? Uh, I, I, you know, some good has come of the pandemic uh, in that, you know, in Europe in particular, there's been a step back from these crippling policies of austerity uh, that have been uh, really uh, just brutal for ordinary people in in, in many countries. Uh, the European Union has you know softened its its budget rules and it's allowed countries in in crisis to exceed the the usual debt targets. Though you know none of that's permanent, uh, and eventually we'll probably be back to a place where austerity rules. In the states, you know Biden comes in and has all sorts of important proposals on taxation. At some point, flirts with a wealth tax, though he's actually generally not favored a wealth tax. I argue in the book, a wealth tax is absolutely you know, vital because, you know, take Jeff Bezos, who we're just taxing income, which is what we do, is going to end up paying a lot less uh, a share of his income than the people who are scrubbing his toilet, right? I mean, he's, he's a guy who, who makes $83,000 a year on paper, that's his salary at Amazon. Uh, that's about what a public school teacher in California makes. Well, you know, the reality, of course, is he's worth $200 billion because he's paid in stock. And we don't tax stock unless it's sold. And even then, we pay it at much lower rates than most people pay income taxes because that's called the capital gains. So Biden comes in. He wants to fund uh, a much more expansive social safety net, which is something that we really need in the United States. And he wants to pay for it by increasing uh, corporate taxes, back to a sort of middle level between where Trump lowered them and where they've historically been. And, uh, and he, he wants to, to tax wealthy people. These go absolutely nowhere. We have gotten nothing in the United States. Uh, and, and it's a similar picture. I mean, in, in the UK, there's a conversation about increasing corporate taxes that seems, seems healthy. Uh, but by and large, the pandemic has uh, enhanced the inequalities that have been there all along. 
And yeah, because these companies don't even pay taxes. Even I mean, we have this uh, amazing American Italian economist Mariana Mazzucato. She is pointing out exactly what you say here that a lot of the inventions that are used in medicine or technology are actually state funded or publicly funded, but then they send very little back to society in in taxes because they. They don't see themselves as a part of any country. They see them as a global, a global tribe that is flying every, over everything with a lot of different passports in their pockets. And, and they tell you a variant of the cosmic lie, right? Which is if you regulate them, if you force them to pay taxes, if you threaten their monopoly on their intellectual property, then uh, we'll all die. Like, you know, Davos man gets paid or, or we all die. We won't have any innovation. I mean, we heard all these arguments surrounding uh, AIDS drugs, you know, in the, in the 90s. And boy, you know, these companies have made plenty of money even after they were forced to share their intellectual property. I mean, n- none of the pharma executives are sleeping under overpasses. Um, I think in your book, the, the, the stuff about Pfizer and Pfizer, you know, overcharging governments, I mean, overcharging, it's just not even the right word. I mean, just extracting so much wealth from these vaccines. And and the scene you portray, which was news to me, about them pressuring the U.S. government to roll out boosters when the science wasn't there yet that boosters would be useful. For me, it keeps coming back to their incredible political power and their power to change the world, really. I mean, pushing for boosters when when the science wasn't there. Now, maybe they were right in the end, right. and maybe boosters have been useful. But the the fact that they can change the course right. of medical practice, the fact that they can go to governments and basically pillage from a social welfare state and benefit from a social welfare state, I think is so shocking. I'm wondering, and Frederick, I hope you don't mind, but I, I, I don't normally ask the questions, but one of the big news stories for me, and I think Frederick as well, was that Blackstone is actually quite involved in the healthcare industry in the U.S. And maybe you... I was just oh, going you were going there. there. Team okay. Health. Team there we go. No, it's go great. for it. It's great. No, I mean, I never heard about the company Team Health. Did you? Had you? No, not at all. So, Peter, what is Team Health? Team Health is one of the two largest emergency room staffing companies in the United States. It's a company that sends doctors, nurses, other medical professionals into emergency rooms, uh, along with another uh, company that's owned by another private equity company, uh, they they essentially control one third of all the staff inside American emergency rooms. Blackstone bought Team Health back in 2016 for about six billion dollars, and uh, they've been accused of participating in this thing called surprise billing. Uh, This is a surprise, not of the happy variety. This is like you show up at your hospital thinking that you're covered by your normal uh, medical insurance policy. Now, medical insurance to non-Americans is, you know, bewildering and bizarre to try to explain because no one would have (laughs) ever developed a healthcare system like we have in the U.S. But you're dealing with generally a private insurance company unless you're dealing with the government insurance uh, for older people, Medicare, or for lower income people, Medicaid. And uh, people show up and they sign the paperwork needed to go get care in the emergency room. And then uh, a few weeks later, they start hearing from collection agents 
when they get these extraordinary bills for, you know, four, five, eight times as much as Medicare, which is the government program, would ever have charged them. Uh, and I discovered that uh, Team Health in particular pioneered this strategy of uh, actually paying their doctors based on the amount of revenue they derive from patients, which is a direct inducement to order up potentially unnecessary tests. I mean, essentially, Blackstone and the, the other investors who've piled into American healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic have turned healthcare into a business that's really not all that different from you know an airline or a fast food chain. Like the customer, the patient is the customer. You want to maximize revenue. The people working in the hospitals are costs to be reduced as much as possible so you can jack up margins. And one of the ways you do that is reduce inventory. It's scary, Leilani. That part of the book was a lot of things that I had never heard about. It's interesting that you also look into Italy, which is then a more traditional European economy, but also Italy has been, and also my own country, Sweden, has been adopting a part of this um, business reality in healthcare. I mean, Sweden is a special tragedy. Uh, I mean, Italy, briefly, uh, the province of Lombardy, which is the wealthiest part of Italy, right? This is where Milan is, high-end manufacturers. I mean, these are truly wealthy, comfortable people who have made money over centuries by uh, making things the rest of the world wants. And it's, Milan, of course, is the financial center. And the pandemic just overwhelms this healthcare system because it turns out in the quarter century before the pandemic, Lombardy embraces this notion that privatization will make us more efficient. And so the result is uh, Lombardy's got all kinds of world-class facilities for uh, for uh, 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 heart surgery. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, cancer, you know, they're, they're just world-class. And yet they don't have any basic healthcare providers. So I talked to a woman who had just taken over a practice from a retiring uh, general practitioner, and she's dealing with COVID. She doesn't even have time to call her patients at the end of the day. There's so many cases. There's no monitoring. You know, you have a system where formerly a, a truly national or a provincial level healthcare system has a bunch of institutions that can talk to one another. Well, now there's all these contractors at the table. I talked to a woman named Chiara Lapora who's a doctor with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And this is a woman who's, you know, spent her life in Afghanistan, Yemen, Cambodia, you know, conflict zones. And she's shocked to discover that her own country, Lombardy, is now a conflict zone. And she and a bunch of her MSF colleagues set up a unit in a hospital uh, in, a, in a place called Lodi, where you know she discovers that she can't even set up a system where they can control who's coming in and out of the hospital because there's so many private contractors handling the bed linens, handling the delivery of the meals, and they're all saying, "Well, we'll be in breach of contract if we don't show up according to our schedule." So the pandemic's you know spreading there, uh, and there there simply aren't enough facilities. And also, Italy listened to the McKinseys of the world and shut down hospital rooms in in, in the name of greater efficiency. Sweden is the most tragic case of, of all, uh, if you ask me, because, you know, here's a, a formerly world-class, I mean, it's still a, a world-class uh, medical system, but they, they have uh, essentially downgraded it in order to finance tax cuts to prevent you know, the next Ingemar Kamprad 
the, the founder of IKEA, who famously, you know, leaves to get out from under the high taxation that's required to finance Sweden's, you know, really generous social safety net. They reduce taxation of wealthy people that goes along with some privatization of senior services, a diminution of senior services and hospital services. So when the pandemic comes in, aided by a kind of crackpot uh, state epidemiologist who decides that, you know, Sweden's going to buck the trend of lockdowns and is going to let people wander around freely without wearing we, face masks. We, we love him. So, yeah. so Take we, we love the uh, crackpot. So, yeah. so th- <laughs> you know, that allows the virus to spread. But what then happens is, I mean, I spoke to uh, people who, uh, doctors who treat, normally treat patients in senior homes who told me flat out that there were directives in Stockholm, you know, if you're living in a senior center where this thing spread like wildfire uh, and you have COVID symptoms, you will de facto, this is the word that doctors use, these are not my words, you will be euthanized. You know, they will put you on a morphine drip, uh, they will cut fluids and it's lights out. They're not taking you to a hospital because they understood, and I spoke to people in hospitals who told me the same thing, we just don't have enough capacity to deal with this. Uh, We don't have enough ventilators, we don't have enough beds, and we're gonna have to make some decisions about who's gonna live and who's gonna die. So if you're in a senior home, and, uh, and you've got symptoms, we're not bringing you to a hospital, we're not even gonna check you out in many cases, we're just gonna, gonna say, that's it for you. And meanwhile, I spoke to nurses inside these privatized uh, senior homes who have no masks, who have no instructions, who have been, you know, their jobs have been downgraded over decades based on these tax cuts and cuts to social services. And they're services. not full-time staff. They're not full-time they're staff. I mean, it was, it yeah. was a horror show in yeah. Sweden. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Played so. out played out very similarly in Canada, sadly, in terms of the long-term care homes. And precisely because long-term care homes in Canada have been financialized. So the private long-term care homes work exactly as you described. Not enough equipment, not enough staff, temporary staff, um, no PPE, the protective gear for folks working there. I mean, And yeah. meanwhile, the billionaires have doubled their wealth. Right. Yep. That's that's the story in your book and that's the story of this of this podcast. And so Peter and Leilani, it's kind of a depressing story. So where where's the light? I mean, I my film I would say the light lies in understanding things and getting a language to talk about things. So in, so in some way the light lies also in in New York Times correspondent writing this book because I, I can feel you that you're kind of angry. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I, I appreciate your saying that, actually, because uh, I think the light lies in us waking up as a society to what's been done to our democratic institutions. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people read my stories. You know, I wrote a story about what happened in senior care homes in in Sweden or the privatization in Italy. Oh, that's so sad. I just feel so sad. Of course it's sad. I mean, it's a heartbreak that, you know, I spoke to a woman who's who lost both of her parents in the same care home in Stockholm. She wasn't even even able to say goodbye, you know, to her to her mother. She could see it happening. And she was. Yes, it's sad. But more than sad, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous that the world's wealthiest people have used this pandemic to profiteer, to add to their wealth, while they're actually telling us 
that they're saving us and even telling us as Mark, back to Mark Benioff, who, you know, I, I find particularly interesting, the CEO of Salesforce, who goes on television in April of 2020 and says, well, you know, the thing about the virus is we're all one. You know, it's unified us as as one humanity, uniquely vulnerable to this uh, this coronavirus. And, you know, he says it's erased the illusion of our borders. By the way, I heard from a Salesforce employee the other day who pointed out that Salesforce actually does a lot of business with uh, ICE, the part of Homeland Security that defends the not illusory border. Uh, and Benioff, of course, is giving us this whole kumbaya, magic carpet ride to one humanity speech from, I can't remember if it was his $28 million uh, home overlooking San Francisco Bay or his uh, oceanfront home on the big island of Hawaii or maybe on a sailboat where he tweets pictures of himself with Lars Ulrich, <laughs> the drummer for Metallica. You know, I mean, the idea that we're all one is belied by the simplest observation about who's delivering the packages, who's emptying the bedpans, who has to go work in a slaughterhouse, who works in an Amazon slaughterhouse where they have to choose between eviction if they if they lose their paycheck or putting themselves in harm's way. So I think outrage is part of our solution here. Uh, I mean, it is not going to be easy to take on the apparatus that is Davos man to reclaim our democracies and overcome the money that Davos man is capable of, you know, of, and Davos man has just unbelievable resources. I mean, Amazon actually released a bunch of, they produced themselves a bunch of television spots depicting all of the wonderful ways they were protecting their warehouse employees with interviews with happy warehouse workers. And they sent these out to American television stations that aired them as their own segments. You know, I mean, the apparatus is formidable, but we've been here before. You know, we, we stared down the robber barons in the 1920s. Uh, after the Great Depression, we got the New Deal in the US, we got a tremendous social safety net in the UK. Uh, the Nordic model's been built up over years. I mean, we have a template where you can take on monopolists with antitrust enforcement, you can build up the power of labor. And, and by the way, you know, stakeholder capitalism, yeah, they talk about labor, but they don't talk about labor unions. And you have to, you have to increase the power of labor unions. And if we can do those things, if we can bring back progressive taxation, antitrust enforcement, and, and, and it's absolutely vital that we boost labor power so labor can bargain for its piece of the action, we could solve an awful lot of problems. Again, that's a simple prescription, not at all simple in terms of execution, but that's what we got to do. And the human rights uh, <laughs> perspective. Imperative. Leilani. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all, I want to say about the light. The book, I mean, there were moments, actually, Peter, when I cried um, in your book. Obviously, it's the human stories for me that are the most moving. Um, you know, when I start thinking about people losing jobs and telling their kids they're not going to college and that kind of stuff, it's uh, heartbreaking. Uh, but I also laughed my head off. You have a very sharp wit. And, Thank you. And so there is light in this book because it's the absurdity, it's the outrage that you bring to light and, and you do make the reader laugh, at least this reader. Well, thank you. Um, in terms of, you know, how do we bring this down, reconstruct, start, you know, I liked the, there was a sort of pragmatism at the end where you're like, you know what, we have the tools, we have them. 
We have to harness them. We have to believe in them. We have to maybe reinvent them for this century and, you know, et cetera. And, and, and I think I'm with you on that. I, I'm actually, as um, listeners will know, and Frederick knows, I'm about to release a set of what I'm calling, un, in a very unsexy way at the moment, uh, human rights directives on the financialization hmm. of housing. So a kind of, you know, here are the actors, here are the instruments, here's how it's all unfolding, and here's what we've got to do. Very practical, but using human rights. A lot of what I'm talking about is tax reform. Right. Better legislation to protect, in this case, tenants. It could be workers, right. you know. So, and I and I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot that can actually be done fairly easily if we can get governments to actually re-engage, to pivot. I mean, governments right now are beholden to Davos, man. They're beholden. They're in bed with them. They're facilitating. They work with them. They're chummy. They're friends, etc. And so we need governments to pivot back to people, I think, and to take seriously human well-being. I actually thought the pandemic was going to be the time. And as you say, we've failed. So far, it's a failure. It's a huge failure. It was worse than a failure, actually, um, in some ways. Um, I mean, it's but, I st- but, you know, it's a tragedy. It is. Yeah. But it's brought it's brought some images that we need to have, you know, into stark relief. I mean, I mean, back to the climate change metaphor. This isn't like, hey, look at the model. You know, look what's happened to a half centimeter, you know, a, a, a half a degree Celsius increase. No, this is like, hey, there's floods, folks. Like we're watching people in boats, you know, hanging on for dear life. And, you know, maybe that will let's hope that that will at least catalyze a serious conversation about how we got here and where we need to go. So Peter S. Goodman and Leilani, he sends it straight off to you. Where do we need to go? We need to do something. And you, I mean, you have your human rights directives, which is also creating language for change. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's one good step. You know, we, we can not only be angry, we also have to be constructive and, and reframe the, the, the debate. In yeah, some way. and the world is ready for this. I mean, people are pushing back, as we say, everywhere and demanding a different world. And it's amazing, actually, what's happening Um, in my world, as small as it is all about housing. People are demanding a different reality. They want a decent place to live and they don't want these big financial actors engaged anymore. So when I wrote the human rights directives, it was very much with that in mind, like, how do we change the structures that are in place that are deeply embedded in our economies, actually. I mean, real estate is a significant part of the GDP of many, many countries. So how do we change that so that people can just get on with the business of living? Yeah, but it, and it's also, I mean, I mean, we opened up to talk about the love of capitalism, but also this kind of failed capitalism yeah. where these guys are kind of always, they, they don't want any competition. They want to, to rule their sector totally, which is kind of not very sound for a society. And, and it's also, it has also a severe effect on smaller companies, you know, so they are, they, these guys are kind of taking all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is which we should do something about, and of course, then the measurement of GDP that you mentioned that the GDP, I mean, so big part of the GDP is housing, 
Um, so it's yeah, or yeah. finance. So it's just it's 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 not real economic value in some way. This is the amazing thing of the financialization of housing. It's not product. It's not what used to be called productive part of the economy. It's mostly, you know, this big entity of some sort, financial entity purchasing something that someone else owned. And then they trade it and they trade it again and they trade it again. It's just back and forth. It's not creating anything. There's no value there. I was actually in New York uh, when when I was meeting Peter S. Goodman. And for me, coming from Sweden, it was so expensive. It's so expensive. And I'm thinking that for every cup of coffee I buy, mm. you know, how much are we paying for real estate? Yeah. Because yeah. We, know, we know that the producer... Uh, who who actually produce the coffee beans are getting a, the le the least. Yes. The guy or the girl behind the counter doing the coffee gets the least. You know, so it's it's. Uh, that's such a, that's I love the way I love that. I never thought of it that way before. That's so bang on. It's Whatever crazy. you consume in those big cities are, it's mainly real estate you're paying for. So the money flies away. You know. Remember we said. Mm -hmm. Saskia says in, in Push, you know, if you want to need to go buy a cup of coffee, you shouldn't go to Starbucks because yeah. then you financialize all the, yeah. it just flies out. And the money goes out of the community, that's right. Yes. Yeah. The problem is, of course, that the pricing of, of, uh, of housing also means that a lot of money goes out anyway mm -hmm. because of the rents that these restaurants have to pay. Mm -hmm. And all of us have to pay. So they are in... There, there is an extraction of value of all the work all of us are doing all the time from these guys who have just been playing with their money and put them on top of our homes and workplaces. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's actually not helping the economy, it's destroying the economy. That's and right. that's Peter Goodman is pointing out that really well in, in his book. So please read it, mm -hmm. Davos Man, mm -hmm. How the Billionaires Devoured the World. So Leilani, summer series, do you like to do summer series? It's very easy for me to do summer series. <laughs> I got time off. <laughs> <laughs> but soon we are back. Who We're wouldn't back. like it? We are soon back into the real world and we have to start to produce new new programs. And we, and we have a lot of amazing things to do this coming autumn. We will keep talking about your human rights directives. I'm, I might open a little bit, to, a little bit into... Okay. show you something from my new film i don't know when but there, may, there might be some small snippets coming out to to our dearest followers and which mm -hmm. are you the listeners of this podcast and if you like the podcast tell your friends tell everybody who who wants to know you know who wants to be smart at the dinner or you know just want to understand a bit more of something that this is actually worth listening to and if you don't think so don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can tell us how we could improve. Oh, yes. And you can sure. write to us. Also. We like you, feedback. You can give us Gentle feedback. Gentle feedback. Yeah. Gentle feedback. <laughs> and you can also write reviews on the platform where you're listening. Yes. Which is kind of good for us uh, because then it looks like we are really important, uh, which we are, of course. Yeah. Except yeah. we'll be like Uber drivers. Five stars, please. Five stars. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, so my dear, I wish you a good ending of the summer and we see you very soon. Bye.
Ciao. Bye, Frederick.